Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. Well, hello, everybody. Um, I'm really excited about today's show because it deals with one of my favorite subjects and with a person who may be the most knowledgeable person on earth on the subject. I'm not sure, but you know, a little hyperbole doesn't hurt. Um, Randy Fratell has written a book called A Taste for Chaos. And it's, it is a focus on a certain form of improvisation in the literary category. Now, most of us in New Orleans, of course, and even worldwide, probably in America, think about improvisation in terms of jazz music. But improvisation is really a way of approaching anything, tasks, work, solving problems, creating with a, with a, a, a certain approach. And, and, and Randy's an expert in it, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. I'm going to let him talk about it. Um, but we're going to also talk about how he arrived with his fascination in the in the art of, let's say, improvisation. So, Randy, let's start with um, let's start with your definition and your focus, your uh, view and vision of what improvisation is all about. Well, most definitions of improvisation um, focus on. It's anything that's composed in the moment of presentation. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's impromptu. It's it's uh, not composed in advance. But um, that leads to splitting hairs about if something is really improvised. So, for example, Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Uh, the great beat novel um, is written in three weeks on a scroll of paper because he he didn't he he called it kick writing when he got charged up on caffeine and benzedrine maybe he would just write and he didn't have time to change the sheets of paper in his typewriter and so. He, we know for a fact that he wrote it in three weeks because we have the scroll and it's been published. And the problem is that he then edited for six years. So does that mean that it's not really improvised? So my definition doesn't focus on the act of composition. That's an element. But rather on the claim that it's improvised. When I claim something is improvised, I'm making a statement about what I think is important. What I think is important about how we know the world, how we approach the world, how we shape the world, um, what faculties of mind we use, reason, craft, virtuosity, those are the ideals that are challenged by the claim 
oh, I just did this off the, off the top of my head, or this came to me in a dream, or, um, you know, there's, there are many tropes, there are many ways of saying, listen, I didn't think this through. Like if, if, if I want to persuade you of something, I have two basic openings. I can say, listen, I've thought about this hard. Here are all my spreadsheets. Here's all the research I did. You really should consider my idea. Or I can say, a great idea came to me in the shower this morning. Now, I may have done all that research, but I choose instead to say, listen, this idea has some substance to it because it came to me through intuition or instinct or the unconscious or so the claim of improv is a challenge to the normative ways of knowing the world um you know since the enlightenment science evidence um all those things are privileged um, by our culture. Uh, meanwhile, the improviser is saying, yeah, but what about intuition? What about dreams? So back to Kerouac, the fact that he edited for six years um, doesn't give the lie to the, the impression of improvisation. You know, part of that novel is his presenting it. I wrote this in three weeks, but part of it is the style of it. You know, the flowing first thought, best thought kind of style impresses us as, oh, there's a way of living that's way different from those suited people on Madison Avenue. I think I might go to Mexico and take some um, peyote like he did. So the on the road helped inspire all the disturbances of the 60s. And that's what improv is. It's it's a disturbance in the normative. You know, um, I, I, I wanted to dive into improvisation to make sure my audience knew where we were going. But now I want to back up for just a minute and uh -huh. say, Randy Fertel, you come from a family that had the spirit of both the the um, disrupting the, the disrupting uh -huh. um, creative as well as the science based um, strictly business you might say yeah. uh, person so you come from the um, Ruth Chris family uh, uh, Ruth Fertel was your mother and Rodney Fertel your father and Ruth built a restaurant empire and your dad ran for mayor to raise money to buy gorillas for the zoo because somehow the gorillas were really important to him. And I, I asked my husband, who is a student of yours at this point, I said, why was it so important, uh, you know, to get gorillas for the zoo? And he said, because they're smart. Is, was, that, <laughs> was that part of it? Or wh why, why gorillas and that kind of creative disruption and to what extent did that feed your fascination with improv? Well, when I search my soul and try to figure out how I could be obsessed with this for 50 years and <laughs> my life always going back to this topic. Um, 
it, it basically boils down to that tension between my mother and father. My mother, the hyper-rational, analytic, uh, math sciences, you know, she had a degree in physics and chemistry and, and a master's degree in one of them, I forget which. Um, and my father was a nut. <laughs> People look kindly on his run for me. I, I like nuts, by the way. I think nuts are just oh, creative. absolutely. And New Orleans <laughs> prizes its its uh, oddballs, and but uh, you know, my father played that to the hilt. You know, he he back then, anyone running for mayor could be in the debates, and he would show up at the debates against Moon Landrieu and. Uh, Judge Gertler, who is his nemesis, um, with a gorilla, a guy in a gorilla suit next to him. And, and, um, <laughs> must have, must have PO'd those, those other guys a little bit. Oh, it yeah. Must have felt and, like and, they were well, being Judge kind Gertler, of Judge undercut by that. Was, was, had been the, um, judge in, my parents' divorce uh, fight, which went on for a decade because my father just loved courtrooms and, uh, and anything to hurt my mother. And, and um, so what the backstory, I mentioned yesterday at lunch, I couldn't remember Gerber's name, but the backstory to his run for the gorilla mayorship <laughs> was that in 1968, I was about to go to college, and I, I was 18, so I was in my majority, I think it's called in Louisiana law, and so he no longer had to pay child support. Um, so my, but my mother took him back to court. Um, she didn't have a lot of money then. She had been in business just three years, hadn't really taken off yet. And um, so Judge Gertler, just by fiat, said, Rodney, you can afford to send your kid to college. Pay his tuition. So my father raised his closed fist. Remember, 1968, closed fists were a big thing. Raised his closed fist and said, I'll get you. I'll get you. <laughs> and he was bodily removed from the courtroom. Oh my God. And so Gertler was running for mayor, uh, proud to be the first Jewish man running for mayor. Uh, though I, I don't think that's true. I wasn't, I think it was a converted Jew. But anyway, um, and so my father entered the list because he, he could attack Gertler at every, every chance he got from from the dais, you know, from the hus hus huskings, hustings. So, uh, and Gertner writes about this in his memoir. He says, you know, this this crazy guy, he, 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 he ran for mayor out of spite to get me back. And, um, you know, he, he had the money to do it and he was bored, so he did it. But anyway, it, it is also true that my father was enchanted by gorillas. I I, I got to travel with my father as a kid. It really opened the world to me. I'm, I'm much in his debt for that. He took me to Europe when I was 15. And I remember the day at the Antwerp Zoo, and I have a picture 
not of him looking at the gorillas. I wish I'd thought to, who knew though. <laughs> but uh, a picture of these, this much better habitat than we had at the time. Uh, I was behind a moat uh, and there were these two huge gorillas and my father was just fascinated. And, and so, you know, part of his shtick running for mayor was how smart they were, you know, how, you know, if we, if we could just learn gorilla language, we could solve all the problems in the world. <laughs> right. uh, your friend Rosemary James um, covered his, his run so often, his campaign so often, that she was known as the uh, gorilla man's publicist. And, uh, <laughs> she told me a story about how once she was on deadline at the state's item and he was, uh, he came up to be interviewed in a gorilla suit and and, uh, and she went over to him and said, Rodney, listen, I'm on deadline. You've got to let me finish this. And so he sat there as quiet as a man in a gorilla suit could sit. <laughs> so, you know, so anyway, uh, back to my book, my book, the, I, in my, in my view, but let me name the book, Rodney. Hold on just one second. I don't know if I mentioned it. A Taste, a taste, a taste for, for Chaos. The Art of Literary Improvisation. Right. And it's not just literary improvisation. I do cover a lot of other arts and non-arts because I think improvisation touches everything we do. It's, right. it's, it's right. the source of all innovation. Right. Whenever there's innovation, there was something improvised. COVID is an improvisation. It didn't exist a year ago. Well, in my new book, um, which I, I, the working title is Winging It, The Secret Power of Spontaneity, I take, um, I take improvisation back to single cell uh, bacteria. Uh -huh. There's a, there's yeah. a um, neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio at USC, major deal in the neuroscience world. And he writes about homeostasis, the, the impulse in all life to flourish. So a single cell bacteria, um, it mobilizes to, you know, eat that thing over there because it needs energy uh, it mobilizes that because it wants to flourish. With flourish means survive and propagate. And that, in a, in a nutshell, is what drives COVID. Its motivation is as simple as that. It wants to flourish. It wants more of, it, of itself out there in the world. And it's really good at it. Think about the birth of jazz in this life. Yeah, I, I, wanna, I want you to tell me about yeah. jazz. In the so, world, it's and why it, improvisation is so key here. It's 1880, 1890. Um, blacks are suffering from Jim Crow. They're chased out of the plantations by the white leagues, which today we would, in Louisiana, they're called white leagues. Uh, elsewhere, they're called the KKK. Uh, Louis Armstrong's mother, May Ann, uh, leaves Booty Plantation uh, sometime in the 80s because of this. And so 
they're oppressed in just every possible way. But they have this impulse to flourish. And um, one of the things that's emerging in this new book is that that impulse to flourish in a black cultural context is expressed through signifying. Do you know this term from Henry Louis Gates, this um, idea that the, in, under Jim Crow, you could lose your life by not doing anything that massive told you to do. But the, they, they developed coming out of Africa, it's an African legacy. They developed this way of saying yes, but meaning no. <laughs> and, and all improv starts with that, right? Yes and. Yes and is the one rule in comic improv. You must not say no to whatever your partner uh, in, in the improvisation offers. You must say yes and then take it somewhere. So in signifying, you say yes and in a, in a way that the massa can't understand, you say no. And, and you say it in such a way as to fill your self, your sense of self with flourishing, right? Um, so um, I, I wish I could remember the full context, but I, I have a passage where I talk about how, you know, the, the incredible ornateness of black expression is a way of um, saying to the white culture, you think you're free? You can't even talk. You can't even play. And, um, and, and, but says it in such a way that Massa doesn't hear the, the put down, doesn't hear the slap in the face. It, so let me, let me um, pull back and talk about your, your next book is going to have more, a little bit more of a focus Whereas your first one focused to some extent on literary improvisation, your current book is talking about improvisation in New Orleans. And of course, you know, there's a kind of cliched image of New Orleans as the birthplace of jazz, quote, but it is so much more than that. And when you look at all the creativity over the decades, especially, I say decades because I'm thinking of the evolution from the, the birth of jazz in let's say the late 1800s and, and, and how it evolves through rhythm and blues and, and blues and funk and rock and roll and um, bounce and all the different more, uh, you know, continuing innovations that come out of this city. What is it about this place and its history and its continuing struggles with poverty on the one hand and a kind of, I call it a, a certain sort of stodginess about, it's, that's not a fair word, that's a very pejorative word, but a, 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 um, a, a resistance to the pressures of other people's definition of growth and future, 
right? We have this linkage to the past. I often say the past is not past in New Orleans. It's part of our right. present, more so than most places. So not most places, but many places in America. So what is it about improvisation and New Orleans and why this is a place where it, it, it seems like it started and it has continued. And that's, that's what most people don't understand who go with just that old cliche of birthplace. It's not just the birthplace of jazz. Well, I, my default is always to go to history and, and, and the way New Orleans was different from the rest of plantation culture, uh, slave culture, is that in, under the French and Spanish, they, they treat slaves were a Jew, you know, um, they, they were overseen by the Code Noir, the Black Code. And the Code Noir in New Orleans and in Louisiana uh, didn't keep the native instruments from being played. They were allowed to make drums and play them. And that's where Congo Square came in. They were given Sunday off also but because of the Code Noir. And they were allowed to um, sell their wares they were allowed to, to, to manumit themselves. They could buy their freedom with the money they earned at the Sunday markets. And this created, so, you, so you've got this base of uh, a law that allows African legacies to flourish, to continue to flourish more than in the rest of the South. Um, and at that market, they interact with Indians, with Native Americans who come in from the bat swamp to trade. And that intermixing of races, I, I, because the Mardi Gras Indians emerge about the same time as jazz, I see them as an improvisation, as it were, an, an innovation that um, is like a, a twinned inflection of African legacies. Um, you've got the same syncopation, the same call and response, um, the same bambula rhythm at the heart of all their songs. But that marketplace um, enables a lot of slaves to buy their freedom. And New Orleans had the most thriving middle black middle class in America. And so one of the ways to explain the emergence of jazz as we know it is that you, you have these blacks from what they call uptown, which is to say across Canal Street in the battlefield that Louis Armstrong grew up in around uh, Liberty and Perdido. Um, and the, Buddy Bolden is from up there on First Street. And these musicians don't know how to read. They, they aren't trained musicians. And somehow there emerges this new kind of ragging on uh, the familiar songs, which late they called it raggedy music and then later it became jazz. But the jazz as we know it really emerges when the downtown Creoles, those um, offspring of the plantation 
owners and their slaves who were either freed or who bought their freedom um, and, and were trained musicians. They knew European um, solfege and, and, and all the, 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 the musicality and virtuosity of uh, the European tradition. And sometime in the teens, there came a wedding of those two traditions when the Creoles who had been looking down on those uh, raggedy uh, musicians uptown at, at uh, Eagle Saloon, suddenly they, they couldn't look down their noses anymore at this, at this music. I mean, they, they resisted it, but finally, and, and I, I see um, Jelly Roll Morton as, as one of the, the catalysts for this merger because he was a downtown Creole, his, his, his name, Morton, is really uh, Moth, right? Um, they anglicized it. Um, he grew up with, with French, not English. Um, and someone, I think he says who, but anyway, that he tells a story in those great um, Smithsonian um, talks that Alan Lomax did. Um, he talks about a friend dragging him across Canal Street to hear this guy in his um, spasm band, uh, Louis Armstrong, eight years old or so, was in a spasm band. A spasm band was a, a pickup band with instruments that were homemade, right? You might use a wash tub or a a cigar box to make a guitar, uh, a, a wash tub to make a, a, a bass. And, uh, and they would play on the street and, and Lewis would sing. And a friend dragged uh, Jelly Roll Morton over there to hear him. And he was just blown away. And so I see the emergence of jazz as we know it as this, this merger of this virtuosic tradition and this tradition that's more in touch with African legacies, syncopation, call and response, um, bambula rhythms. So you were talking back uh, about how it was Jelly Roll Morton appreciating Louis Armstrong and being able to, to fashion, to allow for the merging of the downtown and the uptown music forms, uh, the uptown being more improvisational, the downtown being more influenced by you know, classical European music because they, they, they learned, they were taught how to read uh, music. And that's that's so, very interesting to, to, to pull that, the present, pro to try to see the present problem in light of that solution. And I don't, I'm, I'm going to think about that and I might use that in my book. Um, we have to figure it out. Yeah. I, we to, maybe we're going to have to create a book shield. Um, I forget the name of it, but it's about this community in Lake Charles where she immersed herself trying to figure out why people who love the sportsman's paradise, you know, they're all dyed in the wall environmentalists because they love to hunt and fish and they don't want their, you know, um, paradise destroyed, but they, you know, they're that's in Lake very Charles. Interesting. That's a very interesting. Lake Charles is maybe the most polluted place 
in America, I don't know, but um, all the vinyl siding is made there. Lots of horrible things come out of it. And anyway, so she immersed herself in this world where people worked for the petroleum in industry, but were um, Under conservation. environmentalists, but, but supported all the legislation that allowed the petroleum industry to continue to pollute. And I wish I could remember the name of the book. I'm terrible at titles. Um, and her explanation, I really find powerful. She says, listen, we all, we all have a story that we tell ourselves to make sense of our life. And the people she'd been talking to, the story they tell themselves is, listen, we're all, we're standing in line, walking up a hill. We've been told that the American dream is at the top. And we're patiently walking up this hill. But we see people breaking in line up front. And they seem to feel entitled to break in line. And this shouldn't happen. We need to do something. So that's... That's one story that that half of America tells itself. Um, the other half says, listen, we've created a wonderful city on a hill. And, you know, there's a town square and all these lovely buildings and the foundations are built with freedoms and uh, generosity and all those principles that we believe in that we think are the American way, but there are these people and they keep coming in the night and taking bricks out of our foundations. Something should be done about that. So we have these two groups that feel that their vision of America is, is not being abided by and being ruined by the other side. And so if, if we are to speak to the other side, we have to understand where they're coming from, what, what's bothering them. You know, I, I uh, noticed that you had talked with Johnny Vodakovich. Johnny Vodakovich is one of my favorite musicians in the city. I knew him. I did a thing called the Do Drop In, which I don't know if I ever mentioned to you, but I did a series of improvisational um, nights based on the old Do Drop In where there was a lot of you know, um, sitting in with a new work being done um, for about five years. Um, it was a late night thing that happened during Jazz Fest season until Jazz Fest actually took it over and started doing their own nighttime things. And I kind of said, okay, well, I guess it was a great idea. So great that they're doing it now. And I kind of exited the scene. But I had a conversation one night with, with Johnny uh, where he said that, you know, it was kind of along the same lines that we're talking about, you know, why do we have what we have here? And he said, you know, when I go to other places further north, let's say, or elsewhere, um, and when New Orleans musicians in general go to other places, their music speeds up. Hmm. And he says he believes that because we are below sea level, that there's more resistance Somehow. In the air, yeah, I've heard him say in that. In the air, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that that has an impact, not just on the playing of music, which kind of maybe drags a little bit, 
you know, has that mm -hmm. tail, um, but also on the way we live. So maybe there's some kind of resistance that acts against us moving forward. And, and I don't know what moving forward means anymore. I think we're all starting to realize that the assumptions that growth and more profits and, and bigger this and bigger that is maybe not um, rational. It may be rational, but it may not be the right way for us to go forward. So uh, I really look forward to continuing our conversation. I, uh, we enjoyed um, visiting with you, my husband and I, over lunch and talking about this. And I've enjoyed this conversation very much. I hope you did too. And, Let um, me leave you with just more. one little Johnny Bedakovich. Um, so at the improv conference, New Orleans yeah. um, had a drum session. Um, Stanton Moore. Uh, I was there. John, I yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I introduced it with a story I heard about how Johnny, you know, he teaches and he was uh, once having a session with a young man and the, the, the guy played the drums and Johnny said, you are very skillful. I'm trying to do his New Orleans accent, but <laughs> uh, you're very skillful, but my job's going to be to slop you up. Slop you and, up. And, and that's what improv does. It comes along and says, okay, yeah, virtuosity is great, but how about if we get behind the beat a little? Um, what, what if we, you know, mess with those rhythms and, and uh, challenge and, and throw out the norms? Um, what if we have squeaky blues notes, uh, shrill and they don't even fit on the do re mi scale, um, so that's what improv does. It comes on, it comes on board to slop up the de decorous art that is the norm and norm uh, in our culture. So I'll leave you with that. Um, uh, I think that's a beginning, not an end. I hope you agree, and I look forward to our next conversation. And I'm Great. deeply grateful for your time your generosity and time in, in doing this interview. And I think other people are going to enjoy listening to it. Thank you. We have been talking with Randy Fertel, who has an interesting family background, but who is really at heart a writer and an observer of the conflict between the rational and the improvisational. Um, I have with me now a writer, Tiffany Monique, who is embodies both the rational and the improvisational. She writes, but she also functions in her day job, one of her day jobs, um, in an extremely rational way. So I was couldn't help but think of her during the interview with Randy as um, someone who is a practitioner uh, of, of um, improvisation in literature, she's a writer, but who also has the rational side, as we all do, we all have a mixture of the two, but I, I mean, I think the balancing act is a very interesting one. And when there's a, a real capability in both directions, I find people with that balance fascinating. So I want to know from you, Tiffany, how you have developed that that those two skills, the rational and the improvisational in your writing and in your work that you do, um, 
where that comes from and, and give me a little bit of a sort of sense of the foundation of it and, and how you've been expressing it. And I really want to learn more about your writing. So we're going to talk about that, but let's start with that balance. Okay. Um, well, thanks for having me, Jean. So um, I think that balance is, uh, I think it's for requirement. Um, you have to pay bills and um, writing is never a guarantee to, you know, keep the lights on. Um, but also I came from a background that was very, uh, my family was very pragmatic and you get a business degree or, or some type of function, you, you invest in real estate, you need something that is solid, that is tangible. Um, you know, I, I am a, uh, I contract as an executive assistant during uh, the day. So everything is very static and structured, but um, my lights are on and that's wonderful. Uh, personally, internally, it, I am a storyteller. I love that um, the dialogue back and forth and the world building and uh, those things where you don't have to have as much structure. There, there, are no, there are no requirements. You can peel off everything, race, money, uh, politics, all of those things. Um, I am a, um, I'm a romance author and uh, a poet, and I write about basically love and what that kind of entails for women of color specifically. Um, we have a, I think as women in general, we have certain things that we um, need to have to feel loved. Um, you know, we're not a monolith, absolutely not. But um, I think black women culturally in America have a very specific um, type of support that they need um, because historically there's been, at least in the last several decades, feelings of being very unsafe. And that's absolutely, um, something that is um, structured. I think it is something that is calculated, not think, I know, we, you know, the, the breakdown of the black family and that type of thing, everybody's familiar as, as far as um, uh, that type of uh, deconstruction of strength of the culture. Uh, but with that comes a lot of feelings of vulnerability. And my work brings that in, or I hope that my work brings that in and that the people that these women are drawn to, regardless of how they look or what they do or whatever, um, can kind of fill those needs for that individual. It's not about saving the world, but it is about saving that one body. And that's what I'm, that's what I hope to, to bring forth with, with what I do. Um, you know that I've resisted uh, your tarot card reading because um, 
again, I take too much to heart sometimes these readings and I've, I've, I've done them and they've been fascinating. I mean, I remember um, one time just for the fun of it, a lark, my friend and I went to on 42nd street and fifth Avenue, there used to be a tea leaf reader on the second floor of a building. And we went just for the hell of it. And in that tea leaf reading, two things happened. The person told me that somebody close to me with light hair might die soon. And um, the second thing she said is that um, you should really be in journalism. Well, my father died within months of that. And I became a television journalist um, at, at, at a point and uh, in life. And I, I still do. I mean, I've been doing a radio show now for, um, I forget how many years, uh, 2008, is it? No, I, I can never remember when I started. 2000, I, I've been doing it at least for five years. I've got to go back and, and actually see when was my first show. So um, I, that shit's serious, you know? And, and uh, so I, it's, it's, it's a little scary. And so I, I don't um, feel comfortable uh, knowing uh, too much because it's going to stick with me. It's not going to, um, it's not going to be just, oh, isn't that interesting? It's going to be. Uh, well, it's, it, it's for, for me, um, because I've been... I've been doing it for over over 20 years now. Wow. So it's, excuse me, I'm sorry for the phone. Um, so I've been doing it over 20 years now and it is, it's evolved into something where I was looking to get answers for a gift that was making itself more and more obvious. Um, I didn't necessarily use it for myself. Um, it was a, a kind of an outlet to say, okay, well, clearly I need to place this somewhere. Where do I place this? What tools do I use to, to place this gift? Can I use it? Okay. So um, that is the tool that resonates with me, especially being a writer and an author. It, it does a, um, it has such a strong storytelling function yeah. Yeah. Um, especially with the images of the cards yeah. that it's, it's all, it's all encompassing. You get a visual, you get the tactile because usually people are present usually. Um, and, and also you have you're telling, you're delving into a life, which is in and of itself a story. Everybody is a book. So this to me resonates and I work really well with that. How, how has living in New Orleans both affected your writing, but also is living in New Orleans been at all supportive of you developing the capacity to live based on your creative talent or not? Absolutely. In, in Massachusetts, I didn't get paid to do any of this. I didn't get paid to write. I didn't get paid to to um, uh, to be a reader, to to venture into my emotional or spiritual or artistic self at at all. No, that was just stuff I did on the side. New Orleans just kind of kicked the door in for me. I was here. I moved here seven seven years ago. Uh, so by the second year that I was here, I had written two short stories. The year after that, I wrote my first play. 
Um, I joined a, um, uh, I joined a um, poetry, poetry speaking group. It, it, it was, I had poems published. It was just, yeah, it was just like my artism, my artistry came out and just flowed out and couldn't stop. And um, I realized that that is partly the city because she loves me. And I think that, you know, she is a whole entity in and of herself. And if she, you know, she likes you, she'll tell you. If she wants you, she'll keep you. If she doesn't, she will surely tell you to go back wherever you came from. But, <laughs> but um, yes, I think this city has not only encouraged, it has made it a requirement that you dig into yourself to survive. I have um, dealt with more than one black person coming to New Orleans from a different place and experiencing the relationship between black and white here, which is kind of complicated. The relationship between two sides of anything are always complicated, but um, there's clearly a learning and, an, and a new experiencing process to dealing with that here in comparison to other places. How, how has that been for you? Um, it's been a, uh, it's definitely a transition. Um, it's been a sometimes a horrific transition. Um, the level of blatant disregard for the humanity of people of color is astounding in this city. And, and you would say that that is at a, at a, it's more pervasive than in other places you've lived. Um, actually, it's less pervasive, less pervasive. It's actually more obvious and it's more accepted on a cultural level. That when I say horrific, I mean like, if you've ever, for example, the food industry, if you've ever looked into the front of the house versus the back of the house, of any restaurant that, that you love, if you don't see the, the racial discrepancy or the opportunity for income there, you're blind and you're deliberately choosing not to see this. Um, that was the first thing that was obvious to me here because, you know, food is why people come here. Food, music, the ability to feel that, you know, joie de vivre that New Orleans brings, but a lot of that is due to black culture, but black culture doesn't get paid for that. So, so how has that affected your writing, your thinking, uh, and your sense of the, the path for you to your um, fulfillment and um, you know, the ability to really achieve the vitality that you want through your creative work? Um, I constantly go back and look at the resilience specifically of black women. 
I constantly go back, whether it is from the um, elders that I knew that have passed or didn't know that have passed, either ancestors or whatever, or, um, you know, friends and their families, especially friends and their families in New Orleans that have been here for generations. Um, just some of the stories that they can tell are just amazing. So there's no way that I can't be inspired by and proud of the resilience of women that look like me. And I wouldn't throw away that experience or um, negate that experience ever. It's changed my life, absolutely changed my life. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, do you see yourself staying here forever? Not that any of us know if we're gonna be anywhere for how yes. long. <laughs> but yes. uh, do I, I will, I will, you know, this will be my primary residence forever and ever. Will I be here all year round? I, I hope to evolve and have that not be the case because nobody wants to be in New Orleans in August. Nobody, I don't care who you are. <laughs> but um, yes, this will be my primary residence forever. When did you come to that conclusion? I came to that conclusion uh, actually, I confirmed that conclusion because I, I, I suspected it for, for a pretty long time. I confirmed that conclusion when uh, I traveled to Bali and to New Zealand for two months last year and went through several countries and, you know, spent, you know, a month here, a couple weeks here, that type of thing. And realized that the beautiful good things that are here in this city. Um, there are pieces of those things everywhere else, but not quite like here. And I missed it. I missed it like family. I missed it like, you know, the aunt that hugs you that you only see three times a year. Yes, I, I missed her. So I'm gonna say a couple of years ago when I came back from, from some travels, yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, the work that, um, the organization I work with Creative Alliance of New Orleans and this coalition we're trying to build called the, um, Creative Industries Breakthrough Coalition is all about trying to support creatives like you mm -hmm. and, and make sure that you do have, um, the, the pathways here for fulfillment. Um, what, what do you feel? Uh, if, if, you, if, if you would jump over all the research we're doing to see, you know, uh, to, to kind of quantify um, and, and, and uh, qualify the, the extent of the creative culture here, um, where, where, does, where do you go in your mind about what would be some of the most important ways to help promote um, our creatives in the city and therefore our creative economy? Well, I think the first thing is stability and stability on multiple levels, stability on a um, financial level. Do they have a roof to work under? Do they have a, a, a space to work in? Um, you can't be creative if you don't feel safe. You just, you can't, you can't work. 
Um, I mean, I guess some people could, but I, I couldn't even imagine. So making sure that that basic human need is met for your artists is paramount. Um, then making sure that health is supported, that they're aware of healthcare and options for themselves that they can keep themselves um, alive, <laughs> keep themselves alive so that they can work. Um, you know, some people don't have $75 a week to go see a therapist or what, whatever it is. Um, you know, so, so those things I think are important. Uh, as far as encouraging the creativity itself, giving artists credit for their work um, and access to venues to display that work. Not the same 10 or 15 artists in that industry always getting the same level of, of viewership. I know the world isn't fair. You just can't, you know, everybody's not gonna get the same thing. That's just not reality. It's not gonna happen. But at least give people the opportunity to hustle, do the research, um, you know, submit things that they wanna submit in order to get uh, access, at least access to a way to display their work. So I think housing, healthcare, access to distribute their work in, in a manner that doesn't require an artist to, you know, rent out a, a, a gallery for however much money that they probably don't have. I, I have a much more a complete um, understanding of who you are from that, our, our, our short um, discussion. And, and maybe that is um, a little, again, hyperbole. I, 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 of course, there's many more levels to you that I have not plumbed in this short conversation. But is there anything that you want to add to that for the moment? We'll come back maybe and visit again um, in, in the future, but um, uh, on, on a, for the interview, I mean, we otherwise work together a lot, but um, is there anything you want to add that I have not teased from you in our conversation for kind of some closing notes? Um, I think, I think that we've probably touched on all the, all the good things that are going on. Um, I am um, presently working on an untitled piece um, and it is about a witch and a vampire that fall in love, have a child that saves the world. And they're adopted, their adopted parents are fallen gods. And uh, so this is a series and it's, um, I'm quite excited for it. We'll see, we'll see how this, this pans out. I've already kind of fallen in love with the, the two main characters, so we'll see. Um, so that's going on. If you want to contact me, um, my email address is authortiffanymonique at gmail.com. Um, or if you want a reading, I am um, tiffanymoniquetarot at gmail.com. And also on Instagram, tiffanymoniquetarot. So um, yeah, that's so that's what's going uh, on. Are any of your uh, titles, your past titles, um, accessible? How, how can somebody read uh, some of the things you've written? 
Well, unfortunately, my my past titles are no longer accessible because my um, uh, my publisher went out of business. Unfortunately, she became ill and she had to close up shop. So um, they're no longer available for purchase. But if you you know if somebody wants an excerpt of something, they can always contact me. You never know; I might be nice and share. Okay. So Tiffany Monique, a yep. creative who um, gigs for rational work to, to feed the creative side and is capable of a balance between the two, but um, is happy to be in New Orleans, which has been a boon to her um, creativity. And I'm, I'm extremely pleased to hear that you're gonna be here. Thank so, you. Thank you so much, Tiffany, for who you are. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And uh, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it, sign up if you'd like. Um, Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.